Well, I don't think I have much of an argument to make to convince you of the magnificence and the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. As, as a sermon, I mean, I, I don't, I, both Christians and non-Christians gush over its beauty and its ethic and its high morality. I, I mean, even if you go to the end of this chapter 7 in Matthew, Matthew records kind of the first responders, if you will, to the sermon. And it says they marveled over what Jesus said. That word to marvel, I mean, they were in wonderment over the beauty of what Jesus had just preached. And yet the purpose of preaching is not simply to marvel over something, but it's to, it's to convert, it's to convict, it's to change us to being more like Christ. I mean, the, the idea <clears throat> is that God uses preaching as a means through which to confront people with truth that they've either forgotten or they've ignored or they just have never known. Do you come on Sunday ready to humble yourself under God's word? Do you see the preaching as having that value in your life? We studied together this whole sermon starting in Matthew 5, verse 1. I mean, Jesus has laid out for us, if you remember back in the Beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes of, of meekness and humility and mournfulness over sin and purity of heart. And, and, that, and that, that as you begin to, as these attitudes begin to become part and parcel of your character, that it's natural that you'll be salt and light in that world in 5, 13, and 14. And then he speaks about that, that God's people in God's kingdom will live with a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. The, 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 the righteousness of the Christian will not just be an external conformity to the law, but this internal rightness. You're right on the inside. That, that I'm not satisfied that I haven't committed murder. I don't want to be angry with people. I'm not satisfied that I haven't committed adultery, but I'm fighting lust within my soul. Th this righteousness that is radical for those that have the Spirit of God within them. And then, of course, Jesus continued to teach us about giving and generous giving, and praying, and fasting, dealing with materialism, dealing with worry, not having a critical spirit. I mean, all these things Jesus has been preaching, all the way up until 7, chapter 7, verse 12. In chapter 7, verse 12, he kind of sums the whole thing up. That's what we looked at last week, where he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the law and the prophets, and how it linked back with chapter 5, 17, that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, forming that kind of inclusio, that bookend. And, and he's saying, this is the end of the sermon, chapter in verse 12 of chapter 7. But we still have about 16 verses to go. And these are all application. He's concluding a sermon. He's trying to now call for a response He's calling for you to take action. You're to respond now to what he said. And we're going to see three warnings he gives us. The first one today is you better ponder your path. You better know what road you're on. And, th and then next week it's you better know who you're listening to. Now, there's a good road, there's a bad road. There's true teachers and there are false teachers. And then you better know the foundation upon which you're building because there's some foundations that are made of sand and some of rock. He's warning us. I think it's a kindness of God to warn us about this. Do you know what you've just heard, and are you living in it? Jesus, in fact, will tell us. He's going to help us. In fact, what Jesus is doing, actually, is just following an Old Testament tradition. He's setting before you life and death. That's what he's doing. 
you, you see this in Genesis 3, when, when God speaks to Adam and Eve, and he says to them, if you eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, you will die. If you obey me, you'll live. We see it carried out in Moses before entering the land of uh, Canaan. He says this to the people. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life. But we see the same thing in Joshua. We see the same thing in Proverbs. So when Jesus comes and he says, to enter the narrow gate that leads to life. Don't enter the wide gate that leads to death. He's just following in a biblical tradition of setting before you life and death. What are you going to choose? I mean, choosing what you wear, what you eat, those are inconsequential. But choosing who you follow determines life or death. When we go through this, these two little verses... You always worry when Jesus can pack more in a few verses. Just the peeling back of this is going to be profound, I trust for you. But I want you to put yourself on the block today. I want you to consider, do these things evidence my life? In other words, what we're going to read today is going to validate for you that you are a member of God's kingdom, or it's going to deny the claim that you may make to being in the kingdom of God. It's a very stark passage. I don't know that I have preached something so offensive in a while, and it will continue that way for a number of weeks. So let's read the passage together, Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14. Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus here begins right away with this command to enter the gate, the narrow gate, because there are two gates. There are two gates. One is leading to life and one is leading to death. Now, I don't want you thinking right off the bat that these gates are some, the, the narrow gates for moral people and the wide gates for immoral people or that this narrow gate is for, you know, Christians and all the pagans and irreverent of the world go in the, in the wide gate. I don't think that's true. I think he's speaking to people who all consider themselves followers of Christ. I think he's talking about the difference between true religion and false religion. They all look the same. You're going to see it all the way through the rest of this sermon. The two trees look the same. It's what comes out of them that displays it. The two houses look the same. It's the foundation that you don't seize the difference. So I think he's talking to all those who are professing Christ. This is the danger of it. <clears throat> two gates. The one, of course, uh, the wide gate. I think he's speaking to those who, who have an understanding of God. Uh, they're, they're the type that um, would profess faith in Christ. Uh, they live moral lives. They're doing their religious duty. They are walking out the obligations of perhaps the Ten Commandments. And by this, they think that they are pleasing God and, and that God is somehow beholden to them. In other words, many of the things that we do uh, are, are almost to hold God in control. If I do this to you, you have to do this to me. I, I think this is who he's speaking about in this wide gate. 
This wide gate that, that, that's broad, it's big. You, you can enter into it. You don't have to discard anything. Bring your baggage. It's no problem. It's a tall gate. You don't need to stoop down in humility. You don't need to shed any self-righteousness. Just come in as you are. It, it, it is wide open for you. It's broad and wide. Many people can enter at the same time. I, I think that in some respects, we in the both fundamental and the evangelical church have fostered this by looking at entering the faith through just, well, just pray a prayer. Just ask Jesus in your heart. Sign a decision card. Agree to this theological set of propositions. There's no requirement for true godly repentance. Oh, oh, you might feel sorry over sin, but often that's motivated uh, out of fear as to what God might do if you don't repent. Or perhaps you're repenting to get something from God. But this is the broad gate filled with religious people. Remember, the two trees are the same, two houses are the same. The actions of people may be the same, but it's the motivation. The broad gate has people that are doing religious things for their own position before God. They're resting and trusting on those. But there's another gate. There's a narrow gate. This narrow gate is small. And before I talk about this gate, I want to thank God for the gate. I, I want to remind you that back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were pushed out of the garden, they were pushed through a gate. And, and an angel was there with flaming swords. They couldn't get back in. There was no way for them to get back into the garden because they couldn't get in the gate. And so Jesus comes and he says in John 10, 9, I am the gate and all who enter through me will be saved and they will come in and out and find pasture. That Jesus is this gate, but it's a narrow gate. It's a small gate. In fact, the, the word, the Greek word is stenos. What we have our word stenographer, that, that courtroom where they, they take the dictation of all the activity in the courtroom. It's compressed, small writing. There's much said. and le- That's the kind of gate. It's small and compressed. You have to kind of work your way in. I, I like the, K- the KJV on this, actually. It's the straight gate. Not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, as in, you know, opposed to kind of a crooked thing. But it's straight is an S-T-R-A-I-T. And that word means to crush. It's a crushing gate. You know, we say that I'm in dire straits right now. You're, you're being crushed by, by the effects of this world. Well, this is a, a straight gate. It's a crushing gate. Because you can take nothing with you. You can't take your baggage and your habits and your lifestyles. You don't take those with you. Everything is left to, to get through this gate that you're pressing to get through. Even those of you who have walked in decent moral righteousness, that gets left behind. You have to abandon everything. There is nothing that goes with you through the gate. There is nothing that you're going to bring to God to somehow make him look at you and say, oh, I do find in you acceptance and I approve you. There's nothing that you bring. This is why uh, Alexander McLaren, a great um, 19th century English pastor, talked about uh, that the straight gate has two posts. And the two posts are really the first two beatitudes that we studied. Remember, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn for their sin, for they shall be comforted. it's, It's calling for a radical humility to enter this gate. A radical humility of... I have got nothing to bring to God. I have to 
admit, acknowledge my absolute unworthiness to receive anything from God. This is the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion is the stuff that I bring to God to find some approval with him. Here's what the gospel is. The gospel is, is God gifting us with everything only because of the Son, only because of what Jesus has done. As Keith so eloquently stated at the beginning of his prayer, everything, Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. When the Father looks at the Son, his heart is warmed well done, my good, my faithful Son. Blessed is the Son. And that is what the gospel is. That's the difference. So to enter the narrow gate, it is to recognize our absolute sinfulness before God. To recognize that we have not just sinned before God, we've sinned before men. That it leads us to confess before God and to confess before men. That, that, that the weight of God being holy and us being sinner causes us to just shout out, God, forgive me, have mercy on me. And like in Luke 15, or Luke 18, with the publican coming before God, beating his breast, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. That's the humility we're talking about. This repentance is revealed in a changing of the way we look at life. A repentant person no longer looks at God as some kind of benign deity in the sky, but, but we see God as holy, but also our Father. The repentant person is not looking at Jesus any longer as a good example of how we ought to live, but as a sovereign king to whom we give all of our lives. The, 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 the repentant person isn't looking at himself as, well, I'm a pretty decent person. I mean, compared to everybody else, I think I'm all right. No, the, the repentant person says, no, I am humbled by my sin, but I'm thankful through my Redeemer, and I'm happy for what he has done for me. Here's what repentance is. It's turning from sin, but it's turning to God through Christ. Let me give you one older author's version of it. He says it's to feel guilt in God's sight. Many acknowledge this in words, but they don't thoroughly feel it in their hearts. But if the Holy Spirit awakens your soul, if you really are brought under his blessed influence, then you will not merely speak of being a sinner, you will feel, and that deeply, the burden and guilt of sin. What a difference there is between the cold acknowledgement that you and all the world have sinned and that deep conviction of your soul which leads you to cry out in agony. God be merciful to me, a sinner. What Jesus is calling us to is he's calling us to a decision to enter the narrow gate. Have you entered this gate? I'm not calling for decisionism. I'm not calling for decisionism is different. Decisionism is where I am trusting in my decision of choosing Christ. That doesn't save. Christ and Christ alone saves. But Jesus is calling us to enter this gate. And so I would ask you today, uh, there are two groups of people here, really. One is kind of synonymous or analogous to the older brother. You are religious. You are moral. You're, you're perhaps trying to walk out a godliness in your life. But, but your motivation is that, that in this, you think God is somehow going to find you acceptable. That, that in this, you feel like God is now beholden to you because you're doing this. It's more of a quid, quo, quid pro quo relationship. I mean, many people walk out the dictates of, of what they believe Scripture says all for themselves. I mean, I did it because I feared that something might come down on me. I wanted someone to like me. I wanted to think, someone to think highly of me. I wanted to get more from God. 
it wasn't motivated out of faith. It was motivated out of fear or selfishness alone. And I would say to you that you need to repent of your religion. You need to repent of thinking that you have somehow the capacity to bring to God something that he'll find acceptable. You have to repent of that. God, forgive me for thinking. Here's the evidence of God's spirit. That once, here's the evidence. That while you may have thought these things in your life were good, apart from doing them through the power of the gospel, you now look at them and say, they're filthy rags. That's the presence of God's spirit. But I'd also call those of you here today who have sinned greatly. You are under the weight of your sin. You are despairing. You do feel guilty. In fact, you feel very guilty. In fact, you often wonder, can God really even save me? Oh, he can save these other people, but look at my life. I've done this and this and this and and, and pornography and, and this and that. They just constantly plague me, and I cannot seem to get out of the circle. And, and you think that God can't save you. I would ask you to reconsider that and repent of your self-righteousness. I mean, to think that your sin can somehow outmuscle the grace of God, to think that the gospel in Christ is somehow insufficient for you to be forgiven, that your sin is greater than the power of Christ to say you're forgiven, I, I would call you to repent. Jesus is saying, enter by the narrow gate. Have you entered by this gate? Have you felt that humility? that weight of sin, and appealed to God for forgiveness and grace. Because these two gates lead to two roads. This is the second couplet Jesus gives us. These two roads, and it makes sense if you're going through a gate, you expect to find a road. There's two roads here. And Jesus is teaching us that the Christian life, living in the kingdom, is not simply a decision or a choice to believe in Jesus. It's a choice to follow Jesus. See, many in the church today, we are so emphasizing conversion, justification by faith. We are emphasizing this idea of choosing today for Jesus and to believe in him, but we don't follow it up with sanctification or this idea of what does it mean to grow in Christ and to be conformed to Christ. You know, I I cannot tell you how many people have affirmed to me they accepted Jesus as a child, and now they're living with their boyfriend or they're cheating on their taxes or they just say, well, I I can live the way I want to live. They just want free reign to do whatever they want to do because they have somehow committed to Jesus back 20, 30 odd years ago. And and the irony is that's the broad road. I mean, the wide gate goes to a a boulevard. It's wide. It it accommodates all ideas. It accommodates all thoughts. I I mean, this broad road demands nothing from you. The only thing you can't do is make value judgments. This is where tolerance is the queen of virtues on this road. That live the way you want to live. Now, I'm a Christian, and, and people will affirm, and, and they won't live. I'm not talking about total licentiousness, but I'm, they're selecting. It's, it's what one author said, respectable sins. Ah, you know, they're, they're acceptable in my mind. This broad road accommodates that. The Christian and his friends, the little sins that he takes with him through life. He's not worried about them. He's not putting them to death. John Owen said, if you're not killing sin, it's killing you. You don't believe it. You, you just kind of, it, it's a wide road. It, it's where the, abs- one author said, the absolute is relativized on this road, and the relative is absolutized on this road. It's a broad road. It, it's accommodating. This is radically different than the, than the hard road. Look what he says here. He says that the narrow gate or the small gate leads to a hard road. 
The word hard, by the way, means, means kind of a pressing or affliction. It, it's used when, the, when that stone grinds grain or, or when the wine press squeezes the juice out of the grapes. That, that's what it means. It's a hard road. And incidentally, I would just remind you, Jesus doesn't say anything about, well, it gets easier. The road will get wider for you. Oh, yeah, it smooths on. Just keep going. You get ahead. A few more miles. It smooths out, gets broad, and it's, it's really kind of a nice road. It's not that way. Jesus gives us no false assurances to that. It's a difficult road. It's a challenging road. It's a road with curbs. It's got limits. It has restrictions. You just cannot say, well, this is what I believe about God. The Scripture tells us what to believe about God, that God is holy. He's sovereign. To, to him belong all things that you are, that you have, that you'll ever do. It's a, it's a narrow road. It's a narrow road in the sense that you can't just believe anything you want about Jesus Christ. That the scripture says he's the divine son. He's the God man. In him alone is salvation. There is no other salvation apart from Christ. This is trouble if you take it outside these doors. Is it narrow minded? Well, yeah, in a way it is. Now, I don't mean narrow-minded in the sense of bigoted or ignorant. Like, I don't want to use rubber wheels because we've never had rubber wheels before. That's not what I'm speaking about here. Narrow-minded in the form of singular. That's what it is. That this road has curbs and limits in how we understand Christ. That Christ alone is the Savior of the world. It places limits on the way we live. I mean, haven't we just studied the whole Sermon on the Mount? Isn't it difficult to live? I mean, I'm calling you throughout the Beatitudes. You are to be poor in spirit. You're to actively humble yourself. You're to mourn over your sin. You're to stop and look at your life, look at the sin, confess to God, confess to others, and and mourn over that. When have you you wept over your sin? Uh, You're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're to pursue purity of heart. Uh, Let's keep going down the sermon. Dealing with anger. After preaching on anger, did you reconcile? In other words, you haven't committed murder, I get that, but have you dealt rightly with your anger? Have you reconciled with your brothers and sisters, or perhaps your spouse? Or, or lust? You haven't committed adultery, but what about the lust thing? Are you, draw, are you drawing in another brother or sister to help you fight that? Or not just lust? How about your speech? We said make your yes, yes, and your no's, no. This is a difficult road to walk, to speak in a way that is not self-promoting, not self-deceiving, not self-defending, but just to speak in a way that's truth. Or, or when we went to uh, loving your enemy. You feel like you're doing pretty well um, not hating your enemy. But he says, no, love them, persecute, uh, and pray for them, and serve them. Or how about generosity? After we preach on generosity, did you begin to change and adjust your life to becoming more generous? Did you go home and say, you know what? I think we can give more. I think we can sacrifice more for the kingdom. Or, or this issue of critical spirits. Have you fought that temptation to always find something short in, something in someone else? It's a hard road. It's a difficult road to walk. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, probably in the top three, is speaking about Christianity. And I think you'll see why I love this so much. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion that makes you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. It's a hard road definitely a hard road. In fact, I'm thankful that the women this summer are studying Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress was a book written by John Bunyan back in the 
in the 17th century, and probably for the next 200 years was probably one of the most popular books outside the Bible. It's about a, a man who will ultimately be called Christian. It's really based out of this scripture. He, the first few pages, he's already at the wicked gate, not wicked gate, but wicked gate. And he goes through, of course, the sins are forgiven and his burden is removed. And the bulk of the book is all about the Christian life and the difficulty and the struggle. It's a great book. What road are you on? Is, is the road that you walked, is your life, is it marked by ease and comfort, accommodation, acceptance, relativism? Or is it marked by more challenge? I mean, are you fighting to deal with anger rightly? Are you fighting to deal with the critical spirit that you have? Are you fighting to be more generous? Are you fighting against the temptation to be more materialistic? This is the harder road, but I want to remind you, it's not without its joy. The road that you're on, in fact, Jesus says, I am the way or I am the road, the truth and the light. Same word. This road is about Christ. The joy that comes by traveling on this road is coming because of the gospel. In other words, we're traveling on a hard road, but we're traveling with the Savior who has died for us, who's forgiven us all of our sins. You bear no guilt believing in the gospel. He has earned us a righteousness that has put us before the Father as a son that God loves like his son, Jesus, because of the gospel. That Jesus, in the gospel, takes away that fear of death, that he's conquered death. We can now look at the end of life and not fear, as if we're uncertain as to what's on the other side. The gospel reminds us that God is now our Father. And if your son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? If though you are evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? That's the relationship we have with him now. Even on this hard road, even the hard challenges that come to us, we know have been given by a God who is already predisposed to love us because his nature's love. He cannot give us anything that is bad for the development of our souls. It may be hard, but his grace will be sufficient because he's your father. This is why it's a hard road, but it's a good road. What road are you on? What marks your life? Are there challenges? Are you fighting for holiness? Look at what it leads to. The gates lead to a road. And the roads all have destinations. Both roads have destinations. You see the destination of the one, it's destruction. The other's life. Let me explain this destruction to you. Destruction doesn't mean annihilationism, where you're out of existence. You suck, boom, you die, and that's it, nothing else. No, the word destruction means irreparable loss. It means utter ruin. It means judgment before God and eternal separation. I know we don't like to talk about hell anymore. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to explain that the false teachers in the next chapter are those that don't like to talk about hell. But, and I don't like to talk about hell, but I have to because it's the one destination. There's only two. That's the one that many are moving towards. Jesus said that hell is that place where the worm never dies, the fire never goes out. He's very clear about the reality of hell and eternal suffering in separation from God. That is the destination. The sad part of this passage, besides the reality of hell and all the difficulty that we have in grasping it, is that people are traveling to it and they don't seem to know it. 
It reminds me of those pictures when you see from World War II, the Nazis are putting the Jews on the trains. They think they're going to work camps, they're going to death camps, and they don't know it. And it's a terrible scene. And yet you have in this example here that many are traveling on this road and they don't know it. They haven't looked at the destination. Now, a lot of us are living that way. Uh, do you know what your destination is? I mean, do you, do you have an increasing desire to get to where you're going? Now, now, sometimes we don't know our destination. It's kind of funny. In fact, about 15 years ago, Northwest Airlines at select airports uh, gave out these things called mystery fares. These mystery fares, you could pay $59 and get a round-trip ticket to some place in the United States one day. You fly there, next day you fly back. You pay 59 bucks. you don't know where you're going, but you're going to get a round-trip ticket. Well, you'd think, well, that's kind of goofy. Well, 1,500 people lined up in the Indianapolis airport, and, and some were excited. It was wintertime. Some got a trip to Florida. Others got a trip to Madison, Wisconsin. So, I mean, <laughs> depending upon where you're going, it's fun. But, but, you know, while we can laugh about it for a day, but do we live that way? Do you live not knowing what your destination is? Many of us do. It's a tremendous, it's a fearsome event. The other destination is life. It's life to the narrow gate, to squeeze through, to abandon everything, to walk in utter humility before God and to get on a, get on a, a hard road leading to life. What an encouragement. This word for life, eternal life, not just, not just what you get later, but what you get now, Jesus said this very clearly. He said, this is eternal life. In John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ who he sent. That's eternal life, to know God. What is there greater in your life than coming into a deepened knowledge and experience of the one who sustains the entire universe? Just tell me something that is greater. It may feel like a distance from you, it may be hard for you to grasp this idea of coming to know God, but the reality is that is eternal life. The increasing knowledge, that's the goal of our church. That's the vision of our church, to delight and discover the greatness of God. Not just in this life, but seeing him face to face. Jesus says, when you see me, you'll be like me. But the apostle John writes, I mean, to come to terms with God, that's the destination we want, isn't it? I mean, don't the new cars, the new homes, the new boats, and all that stuff, don't they fade in time? I mean, but to know God, the one God, and to know him in increasing measure, is that not a draw to live on the hard road? I mean, the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 11, it's really a, a book of encouragement to persevere, and he sets before us the greatness of God to persevere. We're pilgrims in this world. He says even in chapter 10, those who were suffering while they were ministering to other Christians, these Christians were having their goods confiscated. And he, says, he says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your possessions because you knew you had better and lasting possessions. They had a destination that they were going to. In fact, the writer addresses it this way. He says, he says they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore... God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That is our destination. God has prepared for us a city. Does that not draw you down this hard road to be faithful, to be obedient, to be joyful, to be satisfied, even in difficult times? 
I want to give you a, a quick illustration. I believe it was from J.C. Ryle. He said, imagine yourself finding out that you have now become the owner of a city, that some distant uncle had, had deeded to you a city full of wealth and beauty and glory. And you just have to merely go and take possession of it. And so you board the carriage and you're, you're driving down the road, but maybe three, four miles away before you start to hit the incline, it will be on the, oversight of the, on the other side of the mountain that the wheel falls off and the carriage breaks. Now, would you sit there and complain that the carriage is broken? Why does it have to be so hard? Would you not leave everything behind? And would you not take up the journey and start to take the hard road to go over the mountain to take possession of that which God has promised to you? I mean, wouldn't you live that way? Wouldn't it seem foolish to hang around the old stuff that was worthless anyways and not to pursue that which was beyond measure in terms of its glory and beauty and, and loveliness? It's the way the Christian is. He looks at the destination. He says, that's where I'm going. Life with God is before me. The last couplet that we have here. And, and again, you, you're asking yourself, have I entered the narrow gate? Am I walking along the hard road? Do I have a destination that leads to life? Last, what group are you traveling with? That's what Jesus is saying. The road, the gate that's wide, that has that wide boulevard that's leading to destruction, there's a lot of people on it. This is a tragedy. You know, oftentimes you hear this, hey, there's safety in numbers. Not so here. Hey, well, if, if everybody agrees with it, it must be right. You know, the popular opinion must be the right opinion. Not so in terms of theology. The fact that majority opinion has never ruled or rarely has ruled in theological truth. This is a road that's wide. It's an easy road. It's a popular road. You feel comfortable because all your friends are with you. This is what John Calvin writes about this, the reformer of the 16th centuries. How is it that men knowingly and willingly rush on carefree, except that they cannot believe that they are perishing when the whole crowd goes down at the same time? Whereas the other group, few travel on it. There's only a few. A few pilgrims, they're collected together, they're walking down that hard road. It's difficult. He says, few are on it. Now, I don't think Jesus means few are saved. I think he is simply saying this, that it is the minority opinion. That societies won't be converted, that whole, whole countries won't be converted. We're not necessarily looking for a Christian country. It's always going to be the few. It's always going to be countercultural. And your counterculturalness is not, is not in the way you look. It's not in something external to you. It's in the character that you have of holiness and godliness, a willingness to sacrifice. Some people, I think, do want to say, no, 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 it really means there'll be few in heaven. I wouldn't go there, only because other scriptures say that many will come from the east and the west. But not only that, Jesus already answers the question. His disciples ask him in Luke 13, they say, Lord, will those who are saved be few? They ask the same question. Here's what he says to them. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's where our focus is to be. I love theological questions and I love discussing. At the end of the day, though, are you striving to enter? There's a, there's a narrow gate. There's a, there's a hard road. It leads to life. And there's few traveling on it. We want to go to prayer right now. I want you considering these things. 
What group are you traveling with? If, if your heart has been struck with concern over the spiritual well-being of your soul, then come down forward after the sermon, after the sermon to talk to one of us. I, I, don't, I often, often ask you to come forward to speak to us with questions. But this is a unique sermon. Jesus is calling for a response to this word. And uh, I, I want you to, to seek God's face as we pray. This is a time of open prayer. We're appealing to God for grace and mercy in response to his word. We would ask you to pray, if you feel so moved, to pray loudly so we can hear you and agree with you. And we would ask you to pray briefly so that others may also pray. Ray's going to close us at the end. Um, yeah, let, let, me, let me begin us in this time of prayer, and then Ray will close us after a few minutes. Father, thank you for this word. It is a sobering word, a path that leads to destruction with many on it. Father, we do not desire any in this room to be falsely led to think. Uh, that they are leading to life when they're not. And I pray through your spirit that you would prompt those hearts to repent and enter the narrow gate. And Father, for those who have entered, encourage them in the life and the destination to which they walk. Amen.